0: A series that we began last week in the book of Haggai. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Haggai. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or the chair next to you. If you're using those Bibles under your chair, we're going to be on page 791 in those Bibles. And again, if you're not using those Bibles, uh, no shame in using the table of contents. Haggai is a small book, and you may have trouble finding it, but we'd love for you to follow along. So we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, page 791 if you're in the Bibles under your chairs. Sometimes maybe you've been to services like this and you hear messages like the one I'm about to give or maybe you even just read an article online or you uh, hear something from a friend of yours or read something in the Bible that suggests that you should make some kind of change to your life, that you should do something different and live differently. And we can respond to those messages in a few different ways. We can reject them. We can say, I just disagree with this. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to do this. We can kind of ignore it and just move on or sometimes it actually hits, right? And you're like, wow, that's a good point. I do need to change something in my life. But you go out and you try to do it and you find some weakness, some challenge in the way that causes you to give up and a week later you may even forget about it. Now on the surface that's not a big deal with everything. You know, that's life, right? You can't do everything and you shouldn't feel like you have to do everything. But there are some messages Where if you don't let them sink in, if you don't let them really make an impact, it can have real negative consequences in your life. You probably can already, at whatever stage of life you're in, think of things that you wish you had listened to at an earlier stage in life that you're now experiencing the consequences of. People who have had more time and and have seen more of life will often say, Man, I wish I had listened to a teacher or a parent or a respected role model or something along those lines. Because the reality is there is a way that the world works. And there is a way that you were created to live, where if we don't live in line with those things, there are consequences. Probably one of the obvious examples of this is if you just ignore health advice, right, from your doctor or from a dietician or someone like that, and you say, ah, I want to live the way I want to live, I'm going to forget about this. Thirty years later, you may really regret that decision. The Bible presents all of its commands as those kinds of commands, the kinds of message that you don't want to miss. Because we weren't just created to be physically healthy. We were created to live in relationship with God. To where if we don't experience that, it will bear fruit in our lives. The beginning of Haggai, which we looked at last week, brought a command to God's people. God commanded them to build his house, to build the temple. A building where God promised to meet with humanity. Where relationship with God happened for these people. And that building had been destroyed... And for 16 years, the people of Israel, the people who originally received this command, had disregarded the building of that house in favor of building their own houses. They had forgotten to put first things first, the, things that, the, the title that we've kind of given to this series, and they had reaped negative consequences from that. Yet, by the end of the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see these people, though for 16 years they neglected the building of this house, they are going to begin building the house By the end of the passage, we're going to look at today. How did that happen? They were clearly weak, right? They clearly weren't just good at obeying the things that God had given them. For 16 years, they had neglected it, and yet they began building. And if we're honest, the opportunities we have to build God's house today, to build a community, which is the way we apply this today, is a command that we often disagree with, disregard, or simply don't follow through on. So how can we do the things that God requires? What we're going to see today is that God himself empowers whatever he requires. And we're going to see three ways that God empowers what he requires. God empowers what he requires through his word, through his presence, and through his stirring. His word, his presence, his stirring. That's what we're going to talk about. So look with me at Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of, or governor of Judah, rather, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king." So the first thing we encounter in these people going from people who were not building the house to people who began working on the house is we encounter the voice of the Lord. The first way God empowers what he requires is his word. He speaks to us. Now remember, I mentioned earlier that for 16 years these people had disregarded building the temple. So they knew from the beginning that they were supposed to do it and they experienced the negative consequences of neglecting relationship with God. God would have been totally justified to say, hey look, you guys have had 16 years to get this together and you still haven't done it. I'm just going to leave you with the consequences of your disobedience and let you suffer under the weight of them. And instead, God comes and again, he speaks to them. He speaks to them and he tells them what he requires. He says, the reason you're experiencing the pain you're experiencing is because you've neglected the one thing that you need most. And I want to invite you and bring you back into that. And he didn't hide from them the fact that if they continue neglecting that, they would continue to experience the negative, painful, and hurtful consequences of this. This is incredibly gracious of God to do. This is what you need. Anytime you're going down a path that is going to lead to destruction, you need someone to love you enough to tell you, hey, this is why this is happening even though it's potentially uncomfortable, God comes to them and says, something has to change here. If you eat at McDonald's four meals a day, you may really like that, but you're going to need someone to come in and tell you, hey, your body wasn't designed to take that kind of beating four times a day. I don't care if you're eating the salads, okay? It's not going to work. And so God graciously comes and he says, this is what I require of you, This is what is going to happen in your life if you don't obey it. Now, how does God do that? What's interesting is he does it through Haggai. So verse 12 says that the people obeyed the voice of their Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet. And what's interesting about that is so far in the book of Haggai, we haven't heard, hey, Haggai said this, and then God said this, and then Haggai spoke, and then God spoke. There's only been one speech recorded, and it's through the words of Haggai. But here it says the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai. How could that be? It's because Haggai was God's messenger. And when the people heard Haggai speaking, they recognized that this isn't just Haggai speaking to us. This is the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 13 makes this connection even clearer. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with what? With the Lord's message. And when he says, I am with you, he includes, declares the Lord. Haggai spoke in such a way that the words of Haggai were the very words of God. And thankfully for us, the words of Haggai have been written down so that we today have access to this same message. And 600 years after these words of Haggai were spoken, spoken, there was another letter written in Romans 15 where Paul, the author of that letter, says, whatever was written down in former days... Whatever was written down in the time of Haggai was written down for our instruction. That means words were spoken 600 years before Paul wrote, and in our case, 2,600 years ago, that were written down, not just for the people of that time, but for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The words of Haggai were the words of God, and they've been written down in such a way that for us, the words of scripture are the words of God. The very voice of the Lord come to us. As Second Timothy 3.16 puts it, all scripture is breathed out by God. As Paul, another of God's messengers writing later, says in 1 Corinthians 14.37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If the words of Haggai were just the words of Haggai, the people could have disregarded him, right? Who's Haggai? Just some guy, right, with a funny name. They could have totally just said, whatever, I'm not worried about it. But if the words of Haggai are the voice of the Lord, they come with all of God's power and with all of God's authority. Do we treat the words of Scripture that way? Do we receive the words of Scripture as the very voice of the Lord, equipped with all of God's power and with all of God's authority? If we do, this passage shows us that two things will result. Obedience and fear. So it says in verse 12 that they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And at that point, they didn't do anything, right? The construction of the house doesn't start until a bit later. But what this means is they took heed of those words. They let those words change them. For 16 years, they were heading in one direction. The voice of the Lord comes to them, and something happens in their minds where they had a definite change of direction. They said, we, we need to start going the other direction. We need to shut down this building project and home improvement projects on our own house, and we need to start building God's house. To obey the voice of the Lord means a change of mind that leads to a definite change in action. They let it affect them in such a way that it changed what they believed and it changed the way they lived. And this is really just what it means when you encounter reality in any form. In today's kind of political conversation, it's common to talk about alternative facts. You know, you'll say... Uh, it's
1: everyone is entitled
0: to their own opinion, but not everyone is entitled to their own facts, right? We have this sense that there's a reality out there that it would be wrong to change and to not live in light of simply if it was more convenient for us to do so. Say, don't mess with it. That's the way it is, and we need to submit to that, and we need to order our lives accordingly. The words of God are like that. They come to us, and they can't just be changed or altered, and we can't just disregard them. If they're inconvenient for us, it's disrespectful to any speaker to treat their words in that way. Like if one of you came up to me after the service today and said, Mike, you know, I'm going through a really hard time right now. I just need to talk to someone. Do you have 15 minutes that I could just sit down and and borrow your ear for a bit? How would you feel if I responded and I said, you know what? I think I know what you really mean. What you're really saying is, you're doing pretty well, actually. And I know you, we have a relationship. I know you wouldn't actually ask me for 15 minutes of my time. So I'll tell you what, I'm just going to go off to my normal lunch plans, and I, I trust that you'll get taken care of. That would be more convenient for me in some ways, but you just know, like, no, you didn't actually deal with what the person was really saying. When God speaks, God speaks. There's words there that we have a choice now of what we are going to do with. Will we receive them as they are, and will we let them change the way we think in such a way that it changes the way, we le- way, the way we live? The other thing we see here is that they fear the Lord at the end of verse 12, that people feared the Lord. Because the reality is God did come to them and tell them what he requires, but he also told them that there were penalties for disobedience, and he told them that the very things that they were going through, they, they, were, they were described as drinking but never being full, eating but never being satisfied, clothed but never being warm, making money but never seeming to have enough. And he's saying that perpetual state of dissatisfaction that you are in is because I have given you over to experience the consequences of life apart from me. And if you continue in that path, it's only going to continue getting worse. Obedience to God's word means an acknowledging of the power and promise of God to judge sin. And the penalty that comes with that. Think about that. The next time sin seems alluring. The next time disobedience seems attractive. The people of Israel originally began disobeying because they feared their neighbors. They feared their opponents. They were saying, don't, don't build this house. They were threatening to attack them. But who are, who are these people in comparison to God? God is the one who controls. People, people are powerful. People can do things to you, right? People can ostracize you. People can hurt you. People can say things to you that that have a profound impact on you. Certain people can fire you, can take away your paycheck. But people aren't in control of the universe. God promised at the end of the passage we looked at last week to send a famine on the land. No human is powerful enough to do that. Who are these opponents? Who are we in comparison to God? Dust. Dust. Blown away in an instant at the Lord's will. He's the one who's really worthy of fear. His word may be inconvenient. His voice may be inconvenient. But it's his word. And it comes with all of his power and authority. And it was certainly inconvenient for them, right? It meant that time they were spending on their houses was now going to be given to building the house of God. But if it is his word, obedience and fear are the proper response. The only response that makes sense if it really is his. Not looking for loopholes to find a way around it. Not minimizing our failure and the way we've fallen short of it. And not a pragmatism that says, Okay, God, I know you've said this, but we kind of know that doesn't work. And we know nobody really takes that seriously. So we have to let the voice of the Lord be the thing that determines the goal and the thing that we're shooting for. So for example, here are some things that God says about how we build his house today through his later messengers. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 9 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We build God's house by organizing... Facilitating and participating in the proclamation of His excellencies together in worship gatherings like this. So 2 Corinthians 6, 6, 6 and chapter 7. For we are the temple of the living God. We are the house, right? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We build God's house by cleansing ourselves from all sin. And bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in our own lives and in the life of our church, first thessalonians five eleven therefore encourage one another and build one another up. we build god 's house as we encourage and as we build up the other Christians that we 're living in community with through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We see here again that praise is mentioned, but added to that is a not neglecting to do good and to use the resources that God has given me to bless and support those who are in situations of material need. Last one I'll mention, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We build God's house by extending God's house by proclaiming the good news of what Jesus has done to every tribe, tongue, and nation. As I read off that list, what do you think? Can you just do that? Is that just easy? Is that the kind of thing that you say, yeah, no, we'll take care of that? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Of course it's the kind of thing that you could throw up a whole list of fears and inabilities. And that's why the next thing that Haggai shares is so important. It's not enough. You will not be empowered to obey. If you just know what God requires, and you know the penalty for disobeying, that's not all God does to empower what he requires. Look at what he says next in verse 13. Haggai relays not only a command from God, but a promise. God says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Author and pastor Paul Tripp says this, God did not create humans to be independently able. He designed us to be dependent. God doesn't ask us to be able. He asks us to be willing. If you are willing, he will meet you in your weakness. God does not ask us to be able. He asks us to be willing. He gives us of himself, of his very own power, of his very own presence, to enable what we would not otherwise be able to do. We are not independent, powerful beings in and of ourselves. And the Israelites would have, would have felt this in a very profound way, right? Because remember, they stopped building the temple because they had opponents. Those opponents didn't go away. They're all still around. They're all still in the land. The Persian government that opposed them, still reigning. What are they just like magically not afraid now after 16 years? No. Opponents are all still there. For 16 years, they gave themselves to another building project, the building of their own houses, their own plans, their own lives. Will it suddenly not feel like a sacrifice to just let go of that and spend time building God's house? Not to mention, they had limited resources, right? All that was built on the temple right now was the foundation. They had a little bit of the foundation laid, and they had some wood to add to it. And they were in not prosperous situations, so they probably felt a limit to their resources too. And they knew what the temple could be. The temple before it was destroyed was 20 stories high at its highest point, about 180 feet long and 90 feet wide. It had specific furnishings, it had gold overlays, it had specific details and directions for how it was to be constructed. How do you do that, right? Where do you get the resources, the power to put something like that together? They didn't have, like, modern technology. Or, okay, yeah. You probably have no difficulty also thinking of ways that building God's house is difficult for you or scary for you, right? You say, I'm, I'm so busy and worn out already. How can I give more of my time to proclaiming God's excellencies? Some nights I just come home, and all I want to do is call it a night And then my city group is meeting that night. I have sins that I just can't seem to kick. Things that I've been fighting. And nobody really takes this that seriously anyway, do they? I'm afraid if I try to encourage someone else, I don't know what I would actually say to them. I don't know how to help people around me every time I get opportunities to tell other people about my relationship with Jesus about what he's done I just feel afraid I worry about how they're going to respond to those things and in fact a lot of times in my church community I don't feel very encouraged and I don't feel very built up by others so how can I go and encourage and build them up how can I use my material resources to bless those who have little when I still feel like I have so little and you know on and on and on I'm a pastor, and so you probably assume, hey, you're the one who's good at this stuff, right? Like, you're you're the guy they pay to build God's house. And okay, like, I've had some training. People have affirmed some gifting. But I can tell you, this week in particular, I can think of two times, two meetings I had with people in the church where I was just like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. That's tough, you know? And I said some stuff, said some true stuff from the Bible, said I don't know a number of times, and I left feeling like, I hope God did something there. I hope this person was helped in some way. And if all I had to depend on was me, that would be cause for great despair, right? Because I you just feel that anytime you try to obey these commands that you're, just, you're lacking something in and of yourself of what God is requiring. And I'm not here to guilt you about that. That's hard, right? There are real challenges to doing the things that God requires. But I, what I want you to see is how God speaks to that. He doesn't deny the difficulties, but what does he say? I am with you. What he doesn't do, he doesn't say to the Israelites, you know what, I'm going to give you 12 extra hours every day so that you can build your house and build my house too. He doesn't say I'm going to give you superhuman strengths so that this all gets really easy. Those enemies in the land, gone. I'm just going to snap my fingers and they're going to evaporate. I'll give you a crane thousands of years before it's been invented. 20 stories high, gonna be no problem. No, he, he doesn't, and he's God. He could actually do all that stuff, right? But he doesn't do it. He gives him something better. He says, I am with you. He gives him himself. He gives them the God who's more powerful than any crane, more powerful than anything else, who has all the time in the world, all the resources in the world to contribute. As you participate in the building of God's house, you are invited to remember that you are not alone. Someone is with you when an extra half hour of sleep just feels like it would be so much better than meditating on God's word, spending time in prayer, gathering with his people for worship. Someone is with you when you feel totally stressed out and a moment of sexual release just feels like it would solve everything in your life. Someone is with you after a long day when your tank is just on empty. And the thought of going to your city group and encouraging another Christian seems like the farthest thing from the reality that you're currently experiencing. Someone is with you when your spouse does that thing again, that thing you can't stand, that thing that makes you just want to punch a hole through the wall. Someone is with you when you wake up for the third time that night because your kid is crying again, and you can't figure out why, and you've got to go to work the next day. Someone is with you when someone else in your community experiences hardship and you just don't know what to, how to help them. You don't know what the right thing to say is. Someone is with you when you have an opportunity to speak of Jesus to someone who's maybe not heard, who maybe doesn't believe, and the fear creeps in and you start to wonder, how are they gonna respond? And consider who this is. Consider who this one is who says, I am with you. This is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. You say, yeah, but there's some powerful forces out there. None of them exist if God doesn't create them, right? The the force of gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong force, the weak force, whatever. God made all of that, okay? And God is the one sustaining and ensuring that every molecule, atom, quark in existence maintains its existence and continues to move in the way that he Is moving it. This is the one who has power over everyone and everything, and he says, I am with you. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. No purpose of his can be thwarted. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This God does not ask you to be able. Why would he? He doesn't need that. He's perfectly capable in and of himself. He asks you to be willing what did the israelites need to fear what is more powerful than this god who is with him what enemy is greater than him what barrier can he not break right through what weakness is he not stronger than what pain is he not able and powerful to heal what path can he not guide you down what hardship can he not see you through He doesn't ask you to be able. He asks you to be willing. And yet, even this willingness is something we're dependent on God to sustain. Which brings us to the third point we're going to look at. God empowers what he requires through his word, his presence, and his stirring. There's one more step before we get to the building. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak and the spirit of all the remnants of the people and then they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their god two things to notice here one briefly is that god stirs up not just the spirit of the leaders he stirs up the spirit of the entire remnant of the people who came back to the land that means the building of god's house all these commands that we've put forward are not just the job of a few select leaders there are leaders, right? He sets aside a couple people that are specifically named as leaders. And today, there are pastors, right? There are city group leaders. There are Sunday team leaders. But the work of building up the body is the work of the entire people. That's who he stirs. But the second and perhaps more important thing to notice is why this stirring was necessary at all. The people had already committed to obey, right? Back in verse 12, it says they obeyed the voice of the lord they were ready to go they're like yeah let's go build the house and yet god still had to stir their spirits for them to actually go and do it and this shows us just how dependent on god we are because we all know that feeling right you read read an article or someone told you that the benefits of being thankful for the things in your life and you're like yeah i need to be more thankful And you start thinking about what i have and not what i don't have and a week later all you can think about is what you don't have it's like that article just never happened I, this, this is one that I, I read, a, read a piece every now and then on the importance of getting a full night's sleep. And I'm like, this week, I'm going to bed early. Getting to bed on time. Week later, not nah, at baseball game. Yeah, I'll make an exception for that, you know. This really interesting article I'm reading, sure, I can stay up a little later for that. And it's gone. And so it is with so many of the commands that we receive in Scripture. There's the initial burst of motivation. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And by Monday, <laughs> sometimes... You forget it, it's gone. As the old hymn puts it, Come thou found we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What happens? The motivation comes, you go out, and immediately you see all the barriers, you see the fears, you see the inability, and what do we do? We look back at ourselves, and what do we find? Inability, right? Inability. You can try all you want to coax yourself up, right? You can can draw on the ageless wisdom of Stuart, the mad TV character. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. You can try that, right? But if you're really honest about what the Bible requires, you know you don't have it. Think, Think about one of the most basic commands in the Bible. Jesus says, great command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means with the same energy, fervor, and commitment that you seek to better your own life, you're to take that and seek to benefit your neighbor in that same way. If you really get that, you got no choice but to say, well, (laughs) I, I don't have it. And the problem we have is, We look no further. We stop there and we say, I don't have it, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let this keep burdening my conscience. I'm not going to let myself keep trying this thing that I just know I don't have it for and I'm going to run in the other direction. So all of our willingness often ends with good intentions because we come face to face with the barriers and we have nothing bigger than ourselves to depend on. Well, God's grace comes. God's grace comes and he says, I am with you and I will stir you. I will save you from the biggest enemy to building God's house, you. God's grace, God's presence with us saves us from ourselves. The biggest enemy the Israelites had wasn't the Persians. It wasn't the lack of resources. It was the tendency of their own hearts to have that initial burst of motivation that just goes away, and that's all of our biggest enemies. That's the enemy we need to be rescued from, and that's the one that God's presence with us stirs up and overcomes by his very power. You can hear his word. You can hear the penalties. You can even have him present with you and have that initial motivation, but unless he stirs you, your obedience will never be more than a temporary effort. It'll never be sustained. But there is a word from God that comes with God's presence and comes with God's stirring. This, is, this word is described in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, it says, In the beginning was the word, and he was God. Jesus Christ, the one with all power in and of himself, willingly became weak. Being born as a human, Not just as any human, but as a baby, a dependent, helpless baby. And in his life, he experienced weakness in a number of ways, but one of the more poignant examples was when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, deprived of food and drink for 40 days. And he resists, he obeys, even in the midst of his weakness. Empowered by what? He says to Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, that comes from the mouth of God, empowered by God's word, to obey God's word. Even facing opposition throughout his life, being threatened with imprisonments, receiving beatings, he continued to proclaim the excellencies of God in the face of that. But his weakness and his opposition was never greater than when his opponents nailed him to a cross, when even God's great promise, I am with you, was withdrawn from him. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ lost the presence of God for a time so that we who do not deserve it could receive the presence of God, could experience and enjoy the promise, I am with you and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Even your sin cannot stop God from continuing to be with you because Christ has covered it and paid for it, and taken the judgment that you deserved. And because Christ obeyed this final command, he was empowered to overcome even death as he rose from the dead on the third day. This is the power that you need. This is the power that ultimately enables you to do what God requires. And it is this power that comes to dwell in everyone who receives Jesus through faith. When you trust in Christ, when you trust in him through faith, as the word became flesh, crucified, and risen for you, his spirit comes to dwell in you. His very, the very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that power is now in all who believe, in all who trust in him through faith. That means in times of hardship, in times when you feel your weakness, it's not even so much that there is someone with you, there is someone in you, dwelling inside of you who has promised that he will never leave you and will never forsake you until the building of his house is complete. The power of the very risen Lord Jesus Christ that overcame the power of the grave, the one thing that no human, no government has ever been able to overcome in all of human history, Jesus has defeated and he has made his spirit to come and to dwell in you. That is the one thing that can rescue you from you, that can stir you in an ongoing way to imperfect and yet genuine obedience. Through the power of this Holy Spirit, you can actually gather with His people to declare His excellencies. Through the power, Of this Holy Spirit, you can actually put aside every sin and cling closely to Jesus and walk in the holiness that he requires. Through the power of this Holy Spirit, you can encourage and build up other Christians. Through the power of this Holy Spirit, you can do good and share what you have. Through the power of this Holy Spirit, you can go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And even when you fail to do that, the word became flesh has not failed. He has let God's power empower him to do everything that God has required on our behalf. Let him stir you, stir you day by day to build God's house.